Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, a part of the amazing FBA family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader, co-hosted by myself, Michael Vizi, and Jason Miles, top 1% Shopify store owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving e-commerce business, look for The E-Commerce Leader on your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, Mr. and Mrs. Mayor, etc. Welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven, eight-figure Amazon sellers. I'm sure you'll learn a lot from this if you produce physical products and sell them pretty much anywhere, actually, because we are talking inspections, product inspections. Again, we have got Sajag Agawal of Movli.com here, and Movli is basically... I love this, your own QC team on the ground for a price of an inspection. So welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me again, Michael. <laughs> Great to have you back. Yeah, so our last episode, if you didn't catch it, even if you're an advanced seller, and this is for the 10K Collective audience, but we we really did touch on some points that I think are not commonly discussed amongst Amazon sellers. So we really need to make sure we don't miss those. But today we're really going to talk about advanced inspections and setting things up at scale. If you're scaling up your production of products and it's the simplest and best way normally to scale an e-commerce business is to produce more product lines, then each product line also is going to be a potential source of stress and defects. And we want to make sure that it is not, so that it is a source of joy to your customers and to you. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is a really fun topic, which is fraud and bribery. <laughs> so you mentioned yourself in the last episode that your initial experiences were pretty harsh. So you can maybe just you know remind us of that and, and tell us what is the way to deal with this. Yeah, definitely. So just a little bit of background context. So before Mavli, I used to run my own Amazon e-commerce brand and uh, we grew super fast. So our first year we did 40K, second year we did a million, third year we were on track to do 2 million that year. But unfortunately, what started happening is we just started having a lot of quality control problems. And I ended up moving to Shenzhen, China, lived there for six months. And while I was there, I was basically doing my own inspections, 12 to 16 hour days at the factory every single day. And one of the things that actually happened to me is that uh, I hired my own third-party inspections company, a couple of companies, and uh, one of them actually watched do the inspection and literally watched them make up results in front of my face. Obviously, they didn't know I was the client, but you know it, it, it's a pretty common issue. And after that, I ended up hiring my own in-house team and forming an office in Shenzhen, and that was for my old brand. And that team started taking bribes from the suppliers and getting a little bit too comfortable with the suppliers after just a few months. Uh, of working. So that was really kind of my experience moving into Movly and founding Movly. And fraud and bribery is uh, fairly common, surprisingly, in China, but it's not so for the reasons you think. So a lot of people have this like idea that you know fraud and bribery is because you know you have a bad actor who goes to the factory who wants to take a bribe, who wants to you know pass your inspection and you know make some money on it. And in reality, what I learned over the last five, six years is that fraud and bribery is mostly number one, due to management, number two, due to incompetence and bad training, and then lastly, due to bad actors. And bad actors are a very small portion of the issues that actually happen. And there's a lot of things that go into fraud and bribery. So 
I actually have a really interesting story to tell. And when it comes to fraud and bribery, and this is this happened to me personally just a few few months ago. So I have flat feet, and I went to the foot doctor, and I actually um, uh, local here in Chicago, and I went to his office. I talked with him and met him for the first time. It was my first appointment with the man, and we had a really good conversation. He asked me what I do, talking a little bit about that, and just a really good conversation. I liked him; he liked me. And at the end of the appointment, he was like, all right, Saja, what you need is you need a pair of these over-the-counter orthotics. So hold on for a second. He went to the back. He asked me for my shoe size, came back with this pair of $50 orthotics and was like, hey, here are some orthotics for you. Try these on. And I tried them on and I was like, wow, you know, these, these work great. They fit. He asked me to walk around. I was like, all right, sounds good. And then when he went ahead and proceeded to actually get into the weeds, I was like, okay, hey, how much does this cost? You know, like, do I just check out here? And he said, you know, Sajak, I like you. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to, I'm going to write it off for you. And I was like, oh, okay, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I'll take it. And uh, he's like, all right, let me get somebody to check you out. Two minutes later, he walks in with the nurse and he says, okay, hey, Sajak, I'm going to need you to follow this nurse out. She's going to take you down the back entrance. They don't really like me giving away shit for free. And I was like, Oh, you know, like it's not that big of a deal. Like I can pay 50 bucks. You know, it's not that big of a problem. And uh, he was like, Yep, no, don't worry about it. Like I insist you're going to take it here. You know, what's 50 bucks to this billion dollar company? You know, it's not a big deal. You know, you're not going to leave here paying for this. And I, you know, as long as you're working with me. So I went ahead, I took the orthotics, I left. But that's kind of my experience with fraud and bribery, at least on a personal level here in the United States. And you know, that's kind of a similar approach that happens in China as well. So, you know, bad actors generally justify it when bad acting happens and you know, they they want to they need a bigger perspective, you know, like, hey, you know, this is an American company or UK company, they're making millions of dollars. You know, what's an extra, you know, few percentage points of defective units? You know, this person here says they're gonna lose their job if I don't pass this inspection. So that's kind of when you know bad actors happen. But surprisingly, that doesn't happen very often. More so what happens is that the inspector doesn't know how to test your products. They don't know how to properly do the inspection, which is a lot of what I think uh, Michael wants to focus on on this inspection is setting up inspections and doing that. And number three, they're not given enough time to properly do an inspection. Like there's a lot of inspection companies which put really obscene quotas on their inspectors to do one, two, three inspections in a day sometimes. And that can really build up. If the inspector doesn't have enough time to properly do an inspection, then it's going to end up, you know, not happening properly. So there's a lot of things that go into fraud and bribery, but we can dive into all those different components, you know, piece by piece. The last thing you just said is the thing that strikes me the most, really, that to the doctor, it seemed like a kind gesture, and it kind of was for you personally. And I guess this perception of the human in front of me, you in that case, or the guy who's going to lose his job versus a faceless company that is perceived to be and may be doing millions or even billions in dollars, seems like there's no it's a no-brainer trade-off. We'd all just kind of help the little guy. And I guess that that comes down to a perception issue, doesn't it? Because actually, a lot of the people ordering stuff on Amazon might try and come across to certain suppliers as being the big guy. And actually, you might get taken a bit more seriously that way. But also then you're going to be treated like the big guy and ripped off. So how do we sort of change that sort of perception quality that actually I'm just as likely to go bankrupt as the guy 
is to lose his job in China if, if we feel that's true. How do we get that across to our inspectors? Exactly. I think it's like forming a little bit of a human connection with them. And I think that's really important because like in that case, when I went to the doctor, it's not like I gave him $25 and I said, hey, if you give me 25, I'll give you 25 bucks. You give me these orthotics for free. You just offer them. I didn't offer him a single penny. And that's kind of the same thing that happens when it comes to inspections. So like one of the things at least like, like we like to do is you know, when it comes to the actual inspection process, we like to tell our inspectors, and this is the same thing you can tell any inspector you work with that, Hey, you know, we're a small brand, you know, this is a very big order for us. You know, like if you're, whether you're doing a million, 2 million, if you're doing 2 million a year and you know, your orders are 80 K each, you know, that's still a pretty big order, but you're still a small brand. If that one order comes bad, you know, your brand is done. So talking with your inspectors and creating a personal connection and saying, you know, Hey, we're a small company. We're a startup. We just started a year ago. We started two years ago. We're not a big company. You know, we really care about our products. We really want to make sure they're inspected properly. You know, that's a really critical approach to kind of take, to build that human connection, to humanize the element of the business a little bit. So that's kind of what I would say is one of the best ways to prevent that from happening is just humanize it. And the second thing is, you know, ensure there's proper accountability measures, ensure there's proper processes in place. So maybe you're rotating inspectors on every single inspection, make sure that, you know, you're working with your factory and saying, you know, Hey, make, you know, we need to do a thorough inspection, make sure there's good specs because at the end of the day, you know, even if the inspector has the best of heart, if you're not doing a proper inspection, then, you know, the products are going to pass on a bad order anyways. Uh, so those are kind of the, the general approaches to take is make sure number one, the inspection is thorough. And number two, make sure that you're kind of creating that human connection with your inspectors. And that's actually one of the reasons like we like to take that QC team approach versus that inspection approach, because you want to build that connection. You know, whether you're working with Mavli, you're working with another inspection company, an inspector that you've hired yourself self, you need to build that human element and, you know, make sure that they understand your products, make sure that they know you as a brand, and then make sure that, you know, they understand the holistic impact that their decisions are going to have and their inspection is going to have on your bigger brand. Brilliant. So two thoughts from me on that. The first thing is actually the idea of coming across as a big brand is not actually in your favor. It isn't with the consumers either. If the consumers right, rightly or wrongly will also tend to assume that you're a multi-million dollar brand or billion dollar and and email you very angrily. And if you can explain to them, like, I'm so sorry, this really matters to us. You're one of our first users of this product and I'm so saddened that you've had a bad experience. We're a small family business. And that's actually going to get you a much better relationship with your consumers. And I'd never really until this point thought that that was true for the suppliers. And certainly a good relationship with the suppliers is important. But I guess that uh, as one um, expert in, in uh, supply management and supply chains and finding, I guess, sourcing, sourcing, if you like sourcing suppliers, tells me he's an Indian chap who's he sort of studied in the UK for a while and is out in Shenzhen, I think now. And um, he said it's all about volume. And yes, that's kind of true for a factory as a whole. But I guess it's actually the human element matters more than I thought. And it makes total sense. And the other thought on that, just on the back of that, is it's kind of a battle for loyalties, isn't it? It's like a bit like forming a sort of army unit and the loyalty is to the unit first as opposed to being a corporate sort of sort of big old what's the word very impersonal situation where everyone's corporate drones the managers are just the enemy and you're just loyal to your friends because that's the only kind of identity you have right it's a question of almost creating an identity for people to hang on to it seems to me exactly and i, I like to add also on that like you can come across as a small business while still coming across as a good big client for a factory. And one of the ways that, you know, like if you go to like factories in China, a lot of the smaller factories and mid-sized ones, 
They're family-owned businesses also. <laughs> they started, the owner took a loan from maybe some family, friends, whatever, started this factory, grew it and grew it and grew it over decades to where it is today. It didn't just start overnight and you know into, into this huge corporation. And what in China is actually really common to do, and this is what I learned when I lived there and, and I was working on the factory floor, we met with hundreds of suppliers. And every single time I went and met with the supplier, they would sit me down in a conference room and they would put up a presentation and they would actually walk through their founding story. Hey, this is when we were founded. This is who founded us. This is the owner. This is why they founded us. This is how we started. This is how we've grown. This is what we do today. And we'd love to work with you. And the same approach can work for you as a customer. So you can say, hey, this is our founding story. We're a new brand. You know, we, we're a family business. This is our expected volumes. You know, we're expecting to grow. We have a lot of interest from you know, investors, customers, whatever you want to say. And you, know, you can present it in a big fashion, but still say, hey, you know, we're a small business. We're starting. Humanize it. Put your face up on that deck that you send them. You know, hey, this is me. I'm the founder. And you know, this is our team. You know, put a couple of people. You know, just put some friends if you'd like, if you want to appear a little bit bigger. But creating that you know, human approach right in the beginning is you know, going to make a huge difference with the supplier you know, to just say, you know, hey, you know, we really care about quality. This is what our differentiating points are. Convey them in English you know, what matters to you so they understand you know, who they're working with. And that'll also help you know, the bad suppliers weed themselves out. Because if they say, hey, you know, we don't have the right quality control, we know we're not going to work with you, and we know this customer is not going to be happy. They're just, you know, they'd rather not take on your business than lose money on your orders when you start having problems uh, and you ask them to fix them. So uh, it will help you weed out the bad suppliers as well. That's great. There's so, so much positive stuff here. And of course, having lived out there and, and lived this life, you're in such a great position. This is quite different to people who've kind of lived an expat life where they kind of live near, but not really inside the communities, which I think is a British disease, by the way. The British have a terrible habit of doing that. Americans also, I think, to some degree. But you've actually gone in there and really got involved in people's lives. And it, it turns out, crazy idea. They have family-run businesses. They also have pride in their work. They also started from somewhere and grew. And I, I really love that because it's such a great marketing thing for the end consumer to talk about, as they say, how the sausage is made. So, you know, what is your family story? Why do you care about the brand instead of being this faceless thing on, on Amazon? And it's really hard to get that across on Amazon, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have it on your website. The sale may be made on Amazon. The brand connection could easily be made on your website. So I'm very familiar with that way of thinking, but I'd never, being, being dumb or just ignorant here, thought about applying that to my supplier relationships, I guess, because I didn't really invest enough in them and the way that you have. And this is such brilliant stuff because it turns out it's the same stuff. So it's something that if we do that work once to put across our founding story in the right way, we can tweak it to be right for suppliers and we can tweak it to be right for investors and we can tweak it to be right for the consumers. And they need different messaging, but it's broadly speaking the same work. And this is such great stuff because I think it's going to make you a better business if you think that way as well. I mean, if, if you if you never articulate your brand story to anyone, then you, you're missing out on a huge business asset, I think. And if you're trying to be Johnson & Johnson when you've got a million dollars a year to little, tiny little business in your kitchen table, you're trying to compete with the big boys in the way that you can't. And all the big companies are trying to be you know, your best mate <laughs> and little. They're trying to act like they're tiny and unthreatening. So it's an irony, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the same thing like when you're working with service providers as well. Like if you want to choose a marketing agency, you don't want to choose a billion dollar company that's going to give you no attention. But you want to work with a company that, you know, is actually going to work with you, understand your products, understand your business and, you know, work with you on a boutique level. And that's really important. So that's actually one of the things like we actually try to do at Mavly. So 
with we actually what we did is we put in service pods so every single inspection and every single customer has like their own service pod of like you know one account manager a couple of ops people that work on the bookings and then the inspectors rotate you know on every inspection but there's that core team that understands your products and you know similar to working with Movly, you know you have that core team with every service provider so you want to talk with them make sure you know they're on board with that same presentation that same story you know whether it's your attorney whether it's your you know supplier whether it's your inspections company whether it's your freight forwarder you want to make sure you have that personal approach and that they actually respect and want to work with you and want your business yeah that's great and i guess what we're saying in in many different ways is small is beautiful right that the idea that you can have a boutique or small business but it is very desirable and actually when you think about consumer behavior it's very interesting and this could get a bit off topic but i think it's all related because you are in just you know firmly into the supply chain side of a business rather than marketing same difference because the 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 best brands locally that i would go to and expect and would actually pay to pay the most would be a locally owned family owned italian deli for example i expect to pay three times as much for pesto or pasta there as i would in a high-end supermarket like waitrose which in the uk is is a high-end supermarket that's owned actually is also owned by the people who own it. it happens to be a cooperative actually interestingly or Marks and Spencers, which is a famous kind of high-end uh, supermarket, more more corporate, very very big, listed on the stock exchange and so forth. I would actually pay more money in expectation of higher quality from the family-owned business than I would in in the the more corporate one. And that's interesting that actually, if we have faith in that perception and come across as a really fantastically run small business that is growing fast, that we can probably you know find similar businesses for us to be as suppliers as well and you're just going to get the best relationships there it's like you you, know, you and i running small and in your case very growing businesses in my case i'm fighting to make it grow and and that relationship you naturally get each other because you're in a similar position if you're running a giant corporate then yeah you give people the run around you send your third rate people the people you send don't really understand what you're talking about and don't care and we all have that experience, right? So it's such a great point. Listen, we, we ought to get on to the next more mundane <laughs> thing, apart from the relationship style, which we've de- dealt with in depth and, and I think needs to be dealt with in depth. Okay, then the mechanics. So we've got to talk about QC documents yet uh, next. So we talked about the basics of having one and inspections for the sort of more you know early stage people. For people who are really established, tell me a little bit about this. So for example, should we be including really complex things in our QC documents and our ordering documents like a bill of materials or precise CAD designs? What do we need to actually include and what's overkill here? That's a really good question. So bill of materials, that question comes up from time to time. And you can get into the bill of materials, you can inspect every single raw material, but most of the times you're not going to know what to look for with every raw material. You also don't really know like how to get you know very specific with that. So I would say for 99.9% of sellers, getting into the bill of materials, pre-production inspections, things like that are not really necessary. I would focus on during production inspections to kind of you know make sure those products are built properly in production. And then the biggest one, the one that you want to do on every single order, your last line of defense, that's your pre-shipment inspection. And that's the one that's going to catch their problems before your customers do. So those are really the ones you want to focus on. And those are all checking finished products. So you know, going into your build materials, things like that, it's not super necessary because an inspection anyways, you want to check things from a consumer standpoint, less so from you know, a material standpoint, unless of course, you know, the materials make a very big impact on the final product. So and for the most cases, you know, don't really need too much there. And when it comes to like CAD designs and things like that, 
you know, your inspector is not going to be able to open a CAD file. <laughs> They're not going to have, you know, solid works on their uh, computer going to be able to open that up. So what I would say is when you're doing an inspection and you have like a very specific CAD design or something like that, send photographs of the product, the final product that you want, you know, exactly done, or maybe like a PDF with a couple of different angles on the CAD design, you know, as long as it's detailed. But one of the biggest things that makes a really big impact on the inspection process is sending a reference sample. So if you have an irregular shape, you have a product that has like a really weird shape or, you know, some weird complex measurements that you want to send a CAD or some photos for, send us a reference sample because that reference sample can then be used to compare from the actual products to the, you know, to the production units. Like what did you approve, you know, versus the production units? And that can help you make sure the texture is correct, make sure the colors are correct, the shapes and sizes. So the core product is the same essentially on every inspection. And you can have your inspections company like Mobley store those samples at their warehouse in China. So if you're running inspections at scale, you have you know 100 different SKUs, have one of each SKU just stored with this, you know, with your inspections company. So anytime you're doing that order, you can just send that reference sample over and the inspector has something physically to compare to. That's very, very smart. I like that. So you're going to store one of each SKU with your supplier, basically. Is that right? Or with the inspection company? Exactly. You can also store with your supplier, but kind of defeats the purpose a little bit because then, you know, you don't know if the supplier can change it out or things like that. So generally, if your inspection company has a good process for that, where they can store reference samples, they can ship them in and out between inspections. That's really critical because that's going to make sure that, you know, those reference samples are not tampered with. They're always in the you know presence of the inspector or you know in some sort of tamper evidence seal that you know no one can alter it or change it. So those are you know really key. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, reference samples are really pretty basic, but it's quite easy to miss because again, we we keep thinking virtually and digitally and two dimensional images of things, even if it's CAD design for that matter, are are the world we live in online. But of course, we it's just not that big a deal to to get something sent via post to China from the UK or even within China from the factory to an inspector or however you manage it. But also, I love the idea of having the reference samples there ready-made. So again, this is much more about, never mind the first time out and making sure your life savings don't go with your first private label product. This is about, we're going to be ordering this thing again and again, especially if it's selling well, and therefore having those things ready-made. Super, again, very simple, but I've never heard anyone say it. It's such a great idea. So tell me a bit more about the actual testing, because as you said in the last episode, and in experienced sellers will know this already, you can't just rely on your inspector to come up with the test because you need to understand your product better than that. So, but on the other hand, we aren't most of us manufacturers unless you happen to have that background. I think I've hardly ever met anyone who's actually an Amazon sort of marketer or business owner who has an actual manufacturing background. Weirdly, it's very unusual. Actually, I tell a lie, there's one person that I've had as a client one out of you know a few hundred that I met over the years. So let's assume most of us don't have a manufacturing background. How do we come up with meaningful product tests to the inspector for the inspector to do? So definitely a couple of things on that uh, in terms of coming up with tests, especially when you're doing it at scale. So the first thing is that you know when you're when you have like 10, 20, 100 different SKUs, probably have a process already in place for sourcing. You know, hey, we're going to reach out to X number of suppliers ask them these questions, you know, make sure that they fit the model, maybe do a factory audit on the top choice to verify everything and then choose a supplier and work with them. So in that process, one of the first things you want to do is when you're talking with suppliers, right in that beginning stage, you're talking with, you know, X suppliers, let them put in the hard work for you. So, you know, go up to them and, you know, there's actually a really good question list. I think we'll uh, attach it at the bottom of the podcast, like a link or something 
where you can actually to get a list of questions to actually um, talk with your supplier on. And, you know, it's like, hey, do you have quality control machines? What are your quality control tests? You know, how are you doing quality control? Do you have a lab? Things like that. You know, are there quality control checkpoints in the production line? And let them tell you what they look at for specifications, as well as what they look at, how they test those specifications, things like that. And if you talk to 10, maybe 15 suppliers, and you aggregate a list of all the tests, all the specifications they'll look at, you'll get a pretty comprehensive list on exactly what you're looking for. It's kind of the same thing you do when you're recruiting. If you're recruiting for a role you're not too familiar with, you don't know how to test for it. After you interview your first like five, six candidates, you're going to get so many different angles on it and so many different you know points that you can look at it from a couple different perspectives and say, you know, hey, is this actually like, you know, when you interview that seventh candidate, you know, like, hey, do you do this, this, and this? And it'll also help you choose a better supplier. So that's one of the biggest things is just talk with your suppliers, put together a list. And then number two, look at your customers, you know, look at your customer reviews, look at your, you know, your products that your competitors are selling. What are the problems they're having? And make sure you cycle that back in so you can say, okay, hey, you know, our inspection is checking to make sure these problems don't happen. Yeah, that makes sense. And the customer reviews thing in a way should be extremely easy. You can even use software these days to extract it. Something like Helium 10, for example, would probably extract a lot of the reviews, quite a few software these days. So you don't even have to go to the trouble of just reading by scrolling down Amazon listings, although that's not a huge amount of work. But also, yeah, the talking to suppliers is super smart. We did mention that in a previous episode, but it's really worth reiterating for really advanced sellers that we actually definitely take the trouble to do this and, of course, create systems and processes for doing that such that we can outsource it and scale it, right? So we don't rely on our own gut feel, but we've got an objective list. And so the next question that really comes up is you've mentioned customer reviews. And I'd like to to revisit that in a second in terms of using inspection as an action opportunity to improve things rather than just keeping things the same. But let's talk about sample sizes because sample size and AQL, all of the fun math stuff. What are your views on that? What's the basics of that? So when it comes to like sample sizes, there's generally the AQL system gives you three levels. So you have level one, level two, level three. Now, a lot of people don't really understand, you know, why are there different levels? So, you know, level one, you know, is 30 units, level three is 125 units. Like, what's the difference? And, you know, how does this work? So even some of the biggest sellers I've talked to, you know, have this misconception that the level system is based on percentages. So say that, you know, for a level three inspection, if you do a thousand units, it's 12.5%. So if I do 500 units, maybe it's like 62 units. And that's not really how it works. So the level system is actually based on a statistical model. Now we can get into like the very specific math and how it all works and put together. But essentially, the higher the level, the more statistically significant it is of the entire sample size, the entire product batch. So I'd put it in this perspective: if you have you know one out of a hundred units, you know have a one percent defect rate, you're expecting one out of a hundred units not to work for a certain product, for example. If you only look at 32 units, your chance of catching that one unit is almost 0%. If you look at 100 units, your chance of catching that unit might be like 25, 30%, something like that. But if you look at 200 units or 300 units, now your chance of finding that one in 100 that's defective is much higher because you have a much bigger sample size. So sample size is the way to allocate for risk. So if you're just checking for a widespread defect that's really common, a lower level makes sense. But if you want to really check, you know, because like on Amazon, say, for example, 2% of your customers review your product in some industries, you know, some it's higher, some it's lower, but say, you know, 2% of your products, you know, are reviewed, 2% of your buyers review, and you have a 2% defect rate, 
because you're not doing a high enough level, then that essentially equates to you know all negative reviews. You're not going to get a lot of positive reviews. Half your reviews might be negative, half your reviews might be positive, and that's not a really good threshold. So that's where it makes sense to do a higher level. If you sell to like brick and mortar, like you sell to Walmart, you sell to Target, a lot of times they'll actually ask you for a level two inspection report. So that's kind of the normal inspection level for like most brick and mortar sellers. And just with Amazon being four times higher for return rates than you know brick and mortar with the negative review risk, which is significantly higher than anything in brick and mortar, which is one of the reasons brick and mortar brands don't perform very well online. You want to do at least a level three inspection, and if you have like small defects or you know small problems that create a lot of you know bad reviews, or even just that one bad review every once in a while that you really don't want, then you want to basically use that kind of mindset. Like, hey, what is the number of units I'd expect this to be? If it's 0.5 percent, then at least inspect you know 100, 200 units, so you, or at least 200 units, so you can at least get that one unit, or maybe even 400 units. So it's really the math is. What is your risk? Can you tolerate a certain number of these issues? And if so, then you can do a little bit smaller sample size, but otherwise stick to like a level three as a baseline if you're selling on Amazon and increase that, especially for areas, you know, if you have like a very specific area or very specific problem that you want to scan for that can happen on a very small number of units. A certain percentage of people will probably follow that and some won't. I, I would say that, of course, there are these things called AQL tables. So we don't have to do heavy statistics ourselves. We can simply go, I guess what you're saying is, if in doubt for Amazon, doing AQL level three, i.e. the most fussy inspection, which if I seem to remember, obviously critical defects have to be zero. Otherwise, you're asking people to accept products that could kill people or, or set fire to them or whatever. And I think it's like 1% major defects and 2.5% and minor normally, isn't it? Something like that. And then you inspect accordingly the number of pieces according to the AQL tables. Is that something about right? It's been a while since I've done this stuff now. Exactly. So in a summary, stick to yeah. at least a level three AQL. And also make sure you're putting that on product tests. So if you have a test that you know you want to check the quantity of the product, make sure you're opening up a level three quantity and not just visually inspect yeah. the products. So if you want to make sure you know how your product works, you know, let's say it's an electronic product, you want to plug it in, make sure that you plug in all level three units and you don't just plug in five units, but visually take a look at hundred units. So make sure you're preventing the problem. And here's the thing I would say that Amazon's created a, a horrific situation for sellers and it's just it's just a reality we have to deal with, I would say. And this is a kind of a market side issue. So I guess I'm a bit more qualified to talk about that. I, I somehow feel that I am anyway, but it shows up in the supply chain, which is this. Amazon customers expect really low prices relative to the, the kind of quality you get and high quality. And that is great as a consumer. I love it. And as a seller on Amazon, it is a nightmare. Of course, inspecting more units puts your price up to a degree, the cost up, and you can't necessarily charge a lot more than your competition. But that is the price of being on Amazon. And you just have to try and, try and square the circle. And again, talking, coming back to squaring the circle, that it comes back to the very first thing we talked about in our last episode, which is that the return on investment, as in the, the non return on investment is normally seen as a positive thing but but the prevention of negative return if you want of inspection is incredibly high and you just got to recognize as you said if you've got a two percent review rate and a two percent defect rate you are absolutely toast on amazon and that is probably a very common scenario two percent is actually a reasonably decent review rate a lot of people have a one percent review rate which would be even worse again wouldn't it so you're 
I can't emphasize enough how right that is and, and how we have to just grasp this nettle because otherwise you're putting moderately defective units into an incredibly defect-sensitive universe. And that is an ugly mix. And I've seen that too many times and people like to bitch and moan about the cost. And I'm like, well, don't sell on Amazon then. You don't have to. But if you do it, recognize the dynamic of what you're doing. The customer is God on Amazon. And that's why we all buy there, me included. And that's why you have to be so flipping careful. So made that point enough but yeah if in doubt at least take your three in it and even hyper fussy beyond that and i guess you're going to get some kickback from from suppliers if you talk about this presumably the right time to talk about the akl level you're going to be using is right before you order not when you've actually sent in the inspectors in is that right so i like to take a little bit of a different approach and just tell suppliers that you know we're going to be doing an inspection it could be level three it could be level two it could be more but you know, just talk about it more on a casual perspective. And then when you talk, you know, when you put something in the PO, you know, just put in the PO, like, Hey, we have a right to inspect up to 100% of units, not saying that we will, you can tell that on the side to the supplier, but we have a right to, you know, see hundred percent of products, you know, open them up before we buy it because, you know, it's our products. We paid for it. We're going to manufacture it. So you should have the right to look at as many units as you want, because if that first inspection fails, and let's say you look at a level three AQL, and now you want to, you know, sort out the defective units from the good units because you're on a, you know, urgent basis. You can't wait for the factory to repair all the products. So you just want somebody to go in, take the bad units, put them on the side and only ship the good units. And you have to look at all hundred percent of units. Right. You can't do that if you put in your PO, you know, hey, we're only going to look at a level three number of units. So my recommendation is don't restrict yourself starting at the PO, leave it vague. And vague actually favors you as a buyer over, you know, the supplier. And you can just tell the supplier on the side, you know, hey, we're not going to do 100% inspection. I mean, that's a waste of money. So on an average, you know, order, why would we spend, you know, way more money doing 100% inspection versus, you know, level two or level three AQL. And most good suppliers are pretty flexible and they'll understand that and say, okay, yeah, you know, you have a right to do that and we'll just, you know, cooperate with you. And I'd also like to add, like, you know, going back to kind of what we were talking about previously. So just for like, you know, sellers that are doing, you know, let's say hundred SKUs, you know, 50 SKUs and they're manufacturing at scale you don't have to necessarily do the most detailed inspections on every product from the get-go. So that doesn't have to be like, you know, you're, you're moving, you know, you're, you're getting into it. You don't have to do everything amazing from day one because it's an iterative process. And one really good way to do that is create a feedback loop. So you have probably have customer service VAs that are working. You have returns, negative reviews, you're tracking that. Just track that on a per product level. You know, how many negative reviews do you get? What are the problems? How many returns do you get? What are the problems? How many complaints do you get over email? What are the problems? And how many problems out of the units you've sold? And then make a list of those problems. So maybe initially you might be doing a level two inspection on all products, or maybe a level three inspection on all products, and you know, maybe some tests you're doing on you know level two. So either way, at the end of the day, when you start getting those problems and you see more problems in certain areas, you can heighten up the quality control on those products and in those areas. So you don't have to be completely 100 percent thorough from day one. You can use your customer feedback from your own listing and your own problems and improve your inspections. That way it's customized to the risk level of each individual supplier and each individual product. This is beautiful, nuanced system thinking. I love it because basically what you're saying, I suppose it's like in in the sense that everybody obsesses about 
optimizing the right bid to get the cost per click such that you appear at the top of the search results, but you don't pay any higher than you have to. And I guess this is really the equivalent. And I guess it's it's the same kind of thing, which is you start with a, a certain level that you feel is appropriate based on your knowledge of the product, the supplier, and that will improve with, with the experience as well. That's kind of iterative, right? And, and the marketplace and your understanding of the consumer's issues and how strongly they feel about them. And if you're dealing with German consumers and you've never done that before, you discover they're hypersensitive consumers, etc. You go through those unpleasant learning curves. But then you, you've, you, once you've got your initial idea then you optimize and people use the word optimize very badly for listings for example optimize means to make optimal so you got to start with your best guess and then adjust based on reality right and i love that because nobody's ever said that to me about much to do with the supply chain at all actually and that that is exactly the way that you go from good to great i think to, to use jim collins phrase is, is to just iterate based on the market's needs but you are the go-between guy between the needs of the market and the people who physically make the widgets and if you just diligently like you literally went to china but if you mentally go to china go to us go to china go to us wherever your market is and you bridge that gap over time i think incrementally you can build an amazing product simply because other people don't bother taking that kind of effort because it's conceptually a bit hard to get your head around but it's completely doable. And may I just also say that I think a small business is way better place to do that. In big businesses, my limited experience of working in big companies, mostly at very low levels, I would add, is they're very siloed. And to get any cross kind of departmental work takes a lot of work and takes a long time. And as a one two million pound business or, uh, you know, dollar business can, be, can do this at a much slicker level than anybody else can. So again, small is beautiful, as we were saying. Exactly. And you can just have your VA do it, you know, put in place a process like, hey, mm. if we see a lot of issues here, you know, once it hits this threshold or, you know, we have like more than two issues or something like that, you know, go hit up a supply chain guy or, you know, yourself and say, you know, hey, you know, we have a problem here. Let's zoom in this. And it goes up and down both, you know, some products you might start at, you know, level three or level two, and you want to go a little bit higher. And some products you might start at level three and say, hey, you know, I don't have a lot of risk. Let me move it down to level two. So it's iterative and it kind of bounces off. But you know, when you start recognizing issues, just have a process in place to get that feedback from the customers, from the reviews, the returns to your supply chain and to your suppliers. And it's not that hard to do. Just let your VA do it. You know, just put in place a you know, one-page Word document of what that threshold looks like for you and when you want to bring it to your attention and just think about it from that perspective. Excellent. Yeah, I love that. And and here's the other thing I would just say that the more I talk to sort of grown up business thinkers like you clearly are, it's not really about fancy technology. I mean, sometimes it can be. We were talking about HubSpot, one of your favorite CRMs. Sometimes fancy technology can be beautiful. But often it's about the overall structure you're creating that's conceptually quite hard to grasp. And you, But you can write it on a big piece of paper, but you have to write it. You have to grasp it. You have to discuss it with your team. You have to iterate. But the actual mechanics of it can be just simply a word doc. I mean, it doesn't have to be fancy. And I think people get a bit distracted by the technology they're using and the sophistication of the system. Systems used to exist in the Victorian era in Britain for some great factory owners on pieces of paper in Britain on by pens. And that's fine. It's still a sophisticated system. The system is an interaction of different parts in a meaningful way, right? Not the software. And I just want to reiterate that because that's another theme that seems to be coming across today. It's the kind of putting the human back in the whole process, really, not getting obsessed with computers as a substitute for the necktop computer, not laptop computer, as an old business uh, coach of mine used to call it. So we better get wrapping this up. Really interesting to go deep diving into something that actually on the surface of it looks very dry. Once you really dive into it, there's all sorts of subtleties of relationships and product development 
and that, that really makes it a lot more come alive as well. So tell me, first of all, what services you provide? Let's, let's just give people a chance if they want to get in touch with you, what things can you do for them? Yeah, definitely. So with Mobly, what we do is just quality control inspections, but kind of like our tagline, you know, we give you an entire quality control team for the price of an inspection. And so we take a very different approach when it comes to inspections. So every time you work with us, you'll have an account manager, you'll have a couple of people assigned to your team that are going to be familiar with your products, your business over time. So for example, like traditional service pod right now looks like three to four ops booking people. And generally you'll work with one mainly as long as they're available, one to two and uh, an account manager. So the entire team is going to be familiar with your products when you do inspections, understanding that. So like, say you have a hundred SKUs, you want to recycle customer feedback, you want tips on how many units to test, things like that. You know, you just work with our team and they're already familiar with your business. They know how many units you're doing, what your size is, and they make sure they understand your products. And then they make sure the inspectors understand your products and know what to test for. And one of the most powerful things that we're actually able to do is that all of our service pods aggregate data. So kind of what you were saying, Michael, about being in a silo, you know, that happens in, in one business alone. And we've actually, we're really proud of this. We've actually been able to destroy silos across all of our clients. So for example, you know, if you have uh, a negative review, you have some problems, and maybe it's not something you've been inspecting for or testing for completely, we actually help you and work with you to actually understand how to test it better and also factoring that into our recommendations. So every time you book an inspection with us, we actually give you recommendations, suggestions on different product tests, different things you can do. And we actually aggregate that. So say another customer comes up with a really good test for your product, or maybe has an issue and you know they want to inspect for it a little bit better, we factor that into our recommendation. So next time you do an inspection of a similar product, we actually send that to you that, hey, we had a customer who had this issue. So before it even happens, you can use data from other customers, a lot of times your competitors, and get a much better quality you know, control process put in place. So, you know, especially for brands that are doing, you know, more sales all the way down to, you know, brands with just a couple of SKUs to thousands of SKUs, you know, our approach is built in a way that, you know, we want to be an extension of your team and, you know, learn about your business, learn about everything that's going on to do better quality control, to do better inspections specifically, more so than just operating as a silo and just doing it rather, you know, just another inspection because inspection is about setup, it's about execution, and it's about the team that does it. So that's where, you know, we want to take that really personal approach. And it's all for the same price of a standard inspection. Amazing. Well, you obviously have really created a, a very beautiful business, really. A beautiful and sort of classical how it works mechanics kind of sense rather than the excitement of standing in a factory inspecting things. But so, nonetheless, what's interesting is when you deep dive into any subjects and you talk to somebody who's really passionate about it, it becomes very interesting. I mean, this is the most interesting inspection discussion I've ever had, for sure. So thank you for that alone. And, and also just so many thought provoking points that actually so overlooked. And I think as a competitive advantage, if, if somebody out there is listening to this, they're already ahead of the competition because they'll have had two or three insights, I believe, in most cases, that the competition hasn't about a very unsexy and practically invisible thing for your competition. Your competition can reverse engineer a lot of what you're doing on Amazon. They can see your listing. They can steal it, frankly, even if it's not officially copyright breakless of stealing. They can copy the ideas. They can see what you're doing with your Amazon ads. A lot of things can be scraped and reverse engineered. But what happens in the privacy of your supplier's factory is really between you and your supplier and yet it has such a massive impact on how your customers feel about your product. So I really think it's just one of those really brilliant hidden gems that people really should focus on, never mind the latest hack with ranking. 
this is where it's at, folks. This is the real business of building a wonderful company. So I'm really grateful for that. We have got this, as you mentioned already, your inspection sort of questions to put to suppliers, amazingfba.com forward slash inspect. And um, we'll, you know, let you work your magic with people there. Just remind us quickly what, what we're going to get from, from that, that document. Definitely. So we're going to put together a really awesome PDF which is just going to give you some tips on what you can do to prepare for your inspection, even before you need an inspection. So preparation for your inspection starts day one when you just start talking to suppliers. So we have some really cool questions you can ask your supplier about how the manufacturing process works, how they do quality control. And then we'll give you some resources and things like that so you can get started. And then whenever you're looking to book an inspection, cough, cough, check out Mobley. <laughs> but you know we'd love to work with you, kind of see you know how we can help you. And see how we can up your inspections game and you know be your quality control team on the ground in china yeah and by the way movly m-o-v-l-e-y.com slightly unusual spelling m-o-v-l-e-y if you're checking it out and, and definitely worth a conversation with an expert i think even if you're not sure whether you're going to work with somebody or not always worth that conversation for sure because you learn so much from that well look this has been fantastic stuff we better wrap it up here i hope the weather is kinder to you over in in canada if that's what no you're not in canada you're in chicago um in chicago it's probably even colder than it is in london right now but i hope the weather stays kind for you there and that covid Bates there as hopefully it will abate right now it's pretty crazy times but it's never been a better time to be in e-commerce for the same reason and um, it's now time to up our gains by the same token and I think this is all part of being a more sophisticated more grown-up business owner and exactly what the sort of stuff I want to put out and help people with so brilliant content thank you so much for coming on the show really appreciate it thanks so much Michael for having me on and to everybody listening I hope this was super useful if you guys have any other questions points things like that you know, email our team because, you know, even if it's not something we have resources on educational materials, if there's questions you guys have that you want to learn more about, reach out to us and ask us those questions. Because just like inspections, it's about iterative improvements. So we'd love to get feedback. We'd love to get questions and really getting those resources out to everybody, you know, in the community so we can help you guys, you know, better work with your suppliers, better, you know, do your quality control because Kind of as Michael said, this is the unsexy part of the business. This is what defines the business. Marketing, you can change, you can split test, changes on the fly, can get copied. But this is like the driving fact because if you have good quality, you have good products, you have you know a really well-built you know items, then that's what's going to be sold. Otherwise, you can't sell something that's unsellable. Absolutely right. Yeah. Got to believe that in the end, we're in product businesses and the product itself is the core of what we do. So yeah, you new guys are absolutely critical part of it. Well, it's been great stuff. Thank you so much for coming on and very much. Thank you for listening as well, if you're listening. And don't forget to subscribe, but also don't forget to get in touch with Sajak if you've got any questions about inspection because it's a man who is very passionate about inspections and everything good it can do for you. Thanks so much for listening to the 10K Collective podcast, part of the family of amazing FBA podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by the new e-commerce podcast, The E-Commerce Leader. The podcast is hosted by yours truly and Jason Miles, multi-million dollar Shopify owner and Unimi's highest rated e-commerce instructor. If you're the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be, it's got your name on it. For free guides and mini courses on many topics, go to www.theecommerceleader.com.